0: Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Would you ever were you ever a hairspray person? Not not the musical, but I guess also <laughs> the musical. Have you seen the musical?
1: I've seen the musical. It's really fun. It's weird. It's fun and weird, yes. Yeah,
0: but were you ever a product hairspray product person?
1: No, never. Um, I have this one. Literally never? Me, never. No. Oh. I think I'm just not I'm too lazy. Even when, like, first of all, like we missed the like big hair time. Sure. Right? right. And so we missed the big hair time. And like I just never had a hairstyle. My hair was just like always down. Sometimes when I was little, I would do curlers. Okay, sure. Which was always ridiculous. But no, I never I never had a hairspray phase. Hairspray. Or mousse phase.
0: Or any sort of product?
1: No, I can't say that I did.
0: Interesting. I can't
1: think of anything. I can think of like one picture of me at my confirmation, maybe with like a French braid that was like, like plastered to my head. (laughs)
0: That's amazing. But besides
1: that, I can't think of anything.
0: Yeah. As a, as anyone who has listened to this for more than maybe two or three episodes where you are consistently commenting on my hair. Yes, uh, always. Things go in my hair. and But these <laughs> days, it's... Stings. I, I just, I switch all the time. Earth. But hairspray was never really one of them, except for in the very beginning when I started actually trying to do something with my hair. Right. When I was in late middle school, early high school. Yeah. And people, like kids boys in particular started doing things with their hair and i was like i want to do a thing we didn't have anything there was no moose at the house there's no gel none no. of that stuff but there was hairspray because yeah. my mom and maybe my dad used hairspray and so i i have this very vivid memory of i went to a a, a, a birthday party of some sort like at a batting cage arcade type thing in our yeah. hometown and i just like kind of i changed many Big things about me. So I had glasses at the time. I didn't wear glasses that day uh-huh. and I couldn't see anything. So that was thing one. That was fun. And then two is I tried to do something with my hair. And instead of it doing anything, it just ended up like sticking straight out <gasps> and being hard as a rock because we just added a boatload of hairspray to it. And that was a that was a bad look, let's say. Uh I think- it wasn't <laughs>
1: No, I love it. But I love it so much. But also, wait, you said you changed a few things about yourself like all at once, like it was a big it was, reveal. It, it was a or big was, reveal. And then I, I went
0: I went completely backwards the next day.
1: I want to imagine you like coming into the party. What's that Sixpence None the Richer song?
0: Oh, uh, there
1: she goes.
0: <laughs> there she goes. She goes again. Again.
1: Yeah, just you walking into the party.
0: Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hamlin,
1: And I'm Vicki Thompson.
0: And this is Third Pod from the Sun. We're talking about hairspray today. Well, we're, we're not actually that we're going to stop talking about hairspray. But <laughs> I was reminded of the old aerosol can that... The cans that were just absolutely terrible for the environment, releasing all sorts of stuff, CFCs, whatever, before we switched over to something safer. I think I think that's right, if I'm remembering that correctly.
1: Have we switched enough Ooh. to say we've switched?
0: See, so that's... Uh, that's a great question. I do yeah. not know. I actually did a little bit of digging before this because I wanted to make sure when I when I wrote this that it was correct. Better, I think, True. not perfect. If I'm, let's just let's just leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, We're not getting worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, today we are talking about aerosols in the environment among a slew of other things, and so we spoke with a NASA researcher who studies them. Our interviewer was Jason Rodriguez.
2: My name is Kirk Noblespiece. I work at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in the Ocean Ecology Lab. I'm actually an atmospheric scientist. I'm not an oceanographer, but the the act of studying the oceans and the atmosphere is, is inherently multidisciplinary. I work on two different missions right now. The one that's closest to launch is called PACE. PACE stands for the Plankton Aerosol. Cloud and Ocean Ecosystem Mission, and that's something that will be launched very soon, in, in January of, of 2024. PACE started as, as primarily an ocean color instrument, so that's using very fine measurements of the color of the oceans to understand what's living in them. These are important because they're essentially plants that that are photosynthesizing. Um, <laughs> they're, they're plants, so they're, they're part of the carbon cycle. You know, they 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 breathe carbon dioxide. They exhale oxygen. In fact, about half of the oxygen that we're breathing every other breath is not made by plants on land. It's made by uh, phytoplankton in the oceans, and so they're they're part of the carbon cycle. You know, carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, but part of that carbon dioxide is is taken up by the oceans. And depending on on how it interacts with the biology in the oceans is uh, potentially removed from the system in in a short-term basis. So that's one component of it. And and from that, you can understand uh, types of plankton in the oceans or phytoplankton in the oceans um, and making distinctions between different parts. But the atmosphere is also very important. And, And my particular background has to do with the study of aerosols. And aerosols are a well, I guess it's it's a term that scientists use to describe any sort of suspended particle in in the atmosphere. And aerosols have a, a number of different sources. Some of them are natural. Some of them are, are anthropogenic. Um, some of them are made by humans. I live in Washington, D.C., and uh, this has been an unusual summer in that we have bad air quality from uh, forest fire emissions from up in Canada. Uh, And of course, this is something that affects people in the western part of the U.S. uh, more frequently. It's just very unusual for us. Smoke is a type of aerosol. Um, It's particles that are the result of combustion. They can live for, you know, they can travel for a long distance. They can go much farther than people would expect. You know, the the fires in in Canada were, you know, thousands of miles away from here. Um, But they don't live for, you know, decades in the atmosphere or anything like that. Unlike greenhouse gases, aerosols live for a little while um, in, in the atmosphere, but they settle out pretty quickly after, you know, a week or two or, or three. And that, that's opposed to carbon dioxide and, and methane, which stay up for decades or, or centuries.
1: So aerosols aren't that bad, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, like compared to some other stuff, sure, but still probably not great.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, for sure. But I was wondering, can Kirk do this work from anywhere or does he have to get to travel to different places to do some research?
2: One of my specific roles is to plan a a field campaign that will happen about nine months after the launch. Um, And this field campaign will fly... Two different airplanes and the airplanes will have various instruments measuring the atmosphere and we'll have a ship uh, in the ocean and various other things on the grounds and a whole team of people making measurements that we compare to the satellite. We do a lot of planning before we go into the field. You know, I, I mentioned earlier a, a field campaign, campaign I'm, I'm planning for the fall of 2024 and we first started thinking about this uh, maybe two or three years ago. But once I'm in the, the field, it's, it's actually a, a quite a different experience. Um, you know, we'll wake up real early and we, we have, a, as part of our team, we ha- we'll have a group of, of meteorologists that so will sit down and have like a briefing um, with the pilots and we'll, we'll, you know, plan where the f- plane is going to fly for the day. We have a very specific schedule. In, in some field campaigns I've been involved with, uh, we we fly on the plane. And so that involves, you know, going very early to the, the airfield. Uh, type of airplanes that we fly on look very different inside than, than what you would expect um, from, say, a commercial plane. So uh, they're, they're a lot less pretty. <laughs> um, they have racks full of equipment everywhere. And some of it's covered up with padding, I guess. Um, and, uh, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's different. So I, I've, I've flown on a, a plane called the, the P-3, the NASA P-3. And so that is a four-engine turboprop. It's a, I believe it's a Lockheed Orion P-3. Um, and that's a plane that's designed for, for sub-hunting. It's it's designed to fly over the oceans at low altitudes. It's not a particularly comfortable plane. Um, it, it's very noisy inside, so we're, we're always wearing headsets with noise canceling and, and talking with each other. It is kind of amazing, you know. Uh, I get very tired by a long commercial flight, you know, an eight-hour commercial flight. But you'll do a ten-hour uh, experience on one of these planes, and it's, it's of course tiring, but not boring in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> so, I can imagine. so everyone's. Yeah, everyone's looking at their instruments, so they're talking about what they're seeing. And it's like, oh, you know, this is a very interesting phenomena that we're flying through right now, or, or whatever. And uh, so it's it's different. You get to travel to places that you would not go otherwise. So I, I did a field campaign once. This was a multi year campaign. Uh, the first year we went to Namibia in southern Africa. And the second year, we went to a, a small country called Sao Tome and Principe. The, the main island is called Sao Tome. That's sort of south of, of Nigeria, off the coast of Africa. Well, what we are interested in was um, the relationship between aerosols and clouds. And uh, and there's some interesting things that happen in the, the southeast Atlantic Ocean. For one, there's persistent clouds. So there's, a, there's something called the marine shredded cumulus cloud deck. That's a very particular type of cloud that uh, is created with cold water. And, and you know this happens off the coast of California, happens off the, the, the western coast of South America, and, and also the southwest coast of, of Africa. What's interesting about Africa is that there's a lot of biomass burning, so creation of dark smoke aerosols over the south african continent that is carried out over those clouds so a lot of smoke also in north america but usually the smoke blows east in this case the smoke blows west so those aerosols get above clouds and and so what the aerosols do is is if the cloud is real bright and the aerosol is dark you know absorbs some energy um if the aerosols sink into the clouds they can change the properties of the clouds um they can also change you know the 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 Meteorological conditions. You know, if you have an absorbing amount of, of, of aerosols, they'll change the temperature profile in the atmosphere, and the temperature profile is what drives formation of clouds. So all these complicated things happen, and so it's it's a phenomenon that happens out over the oceans. What we did in our research was was not much on the location itself. We were flying, and uh, so I can I can claim to fame that I was within two hundred meters of the zero zero point. So 200 meters from the equator and the prime meridian. <laughs> oh wow! All so right. latitude longitude zero zero. Right. Um, so I was I was I was very happy. You know, we <laughs> had a little monitor of where exactly we were, and I was like, oh, we're almost there. You know, and I was like, can we turn a little bit left so we can go exactly over? Of course, it it messes up everyone's data processing because you know you have a latitude longitude associated with things, and often if that goes wrong.
0: Vicky, have you ever been to Four Corners, the the place in the US where Colorado, Utah, Arizona and New Mexico meet?
1: Never, but I have been. Oh, to three corners. I will call it now, where Pennsylvania, New York and New Jersey meet.
0: Oh. Interesting. I feel like I maybe I've,
1: not corners.
0: Yeah, three points. I feel like I Two had points. to have been there considering where in the country I'm from. Yeah. Well, regardless... Okay. I've been to Four Corners. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's fine. Maybe I've been to Three Corners. I feel like it's a much less cool version of what Kirk experienced.
1: I mean, we're much less cool. Ch-
0: true. I appreciate you including yourself in that. Yeah. And so beyond Kirk getting to do some amazing field experiences, we wanted to dig into the actual research he's doing and the data he was collecting.
2: So. We can all imagine an imager from space, a camera, right? And that camera might have multiple colors, red, green, and blue that it's sensitive to. Um, One of the instruments on PACE is what we call hyperspectral. So instead of having like three color channels, it will have, I forget exactly the number, but more than 30. So lots and lots of colors to work with to understand what's going on in the scene. So that's one dimension you can work with is color of light. Another dimension you can work with is the polarization state. And so polarization is the direction in which light waves oscillate. You know, coming from the sun, that direction is just randomized. Some, some light waves are in one direction, some are in another. But when that light interacts with, say, like the surface of, of the ocean, what's reflected might have a preference. And if you saw the world through polarization-sensitive eyes, every time you flew in an airplane, you'd see rainbows everywhere. So, you know, we, we know of rainbows is, is light interacting with rain droplets. There's something else that's very similar that we call a cloud bow. So, this is light interacting with smaller cloud droplets. There are certain situations where you can see little bits of cloud bows. I think if you're in an airplane, you might, you know, if you really look out the window and, and, and look, you might see in some situations if you're looking down in a cloud and the sun's behind you. Um, but it's harder, it's, it's not very distinct. In polarization, it is. So, we can look out. Um, You know, we can look at clouds with with polarization and look for rainbows. And it's not just because it's cool to see a rainbow. The location and the type of that rainbow tells us about the cloud droplets themselves. So the specific angle with respect to the sun that the rainbow occurs at tells us, is the droplet large or small? Um, If there's like secondary rainbows or what we call supernumerary bows, those tell us about the size about the distribution of sizes you know is everything one size or is it like a a dispersion of a whole bunch of different sizes together so all these things we can use to understand clouds and so if you want to look at the role between aerosols and clouds you have a good instrument for studying aerosols but you also have a good way of understanding what the clouds are doing from that type of instrument
1: So do you feel like you now know more about clouds than you ever really wanted to?
0: I mean, I honestly don't think about cloud composition very often, but yeah, yeah, this is, this is cool stuff. What about you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think about clouds. I think about clouds a lot. I feel like you just hurt clouds feelings. I feel, uh, I don't think about clouds. We're
0: not going clouds. There's, um, oh my gosh, there's a, I'm just picturing an illustration of a cloud, like an anthropomorphized cloud with... What is that from? It's from like a show or a movie. This is a great story, and I'm going to stop talking about it. But Kerr <laughs> is obviously very into this. and But I don't know that he always wanted to be a kind of like capital S scientist.
2: I, I think I always wanted to be a scientist, but at some point... In maybe high school, I changed my mind on that. And I I got into the arts. I went to art school. Um, I I have a degree in photography. And then throughout the rest of of my adulthood, I I sort of slowly shifted a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer to doing science. After photo school, I I kind of was trying to decide if I wanted to move in the more artsy direction, the more techie direction. And I received some advice from an advisor that it was... um, Usually a little bit easier to do arts in your own time than it is to do science or technology in your own time. And uh, it's okay to to like both things.
0: I was really struck by this thought from Kirk because I had to make that decision actually pretty early on too. I'm a musician, there's there's Mm -hmm. a drum set literally right behind me, but also liked science. So I had to choose which was going to be like, which way my main passion was going to go. And I went with science. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people make that choice, even just from a money standpoint, like what can I do with... Yeah, my passion, right?
0: Yeah, I mean that was that was part of it. Uh, I mean, and, and I do. I have a I have a minor in music, so I mean, I didn't.
1: Aww. What is that? <laughs> That's no, just... you kept it. Like you made it Uh-oh. so it's still like a serious. So you still have it as like a serious enough thing. It's like you didn't just like designate it to a hobby.
0: Ye- you sh- like
1: kept learning. Sure. In yeah. A serious way.
0: At this point, it's a hobby that every year I, I think I, I say that I need to pick back up. But for yeah, yeah, let's go with that. That it's I, I made that dedicated decision. Uh and and after Kirk chose science as his main passion, he had to do some deciding on exactly what he wanted to get into.
2: You know, you said that you were drawn to satellite images. What what drew you to those? They're pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a lot about the earth that you can only understand from a, a, a distance, you know, and, and so there's an aspect of, of, you know, just look out the window of an airplane that the things look, you know, that you can see things that you just can't see from the ground. And 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 there's beauty in that. Um, there's an aspect of, of satellite remote sensing as well that is even, even beyond that, really, you know, we're making measurements all the time, every day over the course of years. So there's things, there's phenomena that you cannot observe until you start doing that. You know, you're not going to see, you know, uh, very obviously, uh, you know, some particular part of your climate model by just looking at one image. You need to look at 20 years of data before you can start to understand, oh, this thing is impacting in some way. So I, I guess, uh, I guess it, at the core is, is that there are scales of, of human perception, and satellite imaging brings us to a different scale of, of, of human perception, both in space and in time.
0: Vicky, do you think you have the patience to work on timescales of tens of years, like Kirk has to do with his work?
1: No, absolutely not. I <laughs> I like get frustrated or start to feel nervous if I don't like move the needle on work like by the end of the day. Yeah. So to have something that I'm like working on for that long would keep me up at night every night for tens of
0: years. <laughs> keep you up for tens of years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't I don't either or even I don't think I did when I was a researcher. I was always amazed by folks who did studies that were just a couple of years. I mean, if I couldn't answer a question in a field season, we're talking months. I usually yeah. just wasn't interested.
1: Yeah, and and look at you now. You're running a weekly podcast multiple seasons.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different, but I'll take I'll take the compliment.
1: There was no compliment. It was just facts. Vicky, I'm going tr-
0: to cut you off for time. Time? Yes, for time. We have no more time. We are over. And so with that, <laughs> that is all <laughs> from third pod from the sun.
1: Special thanks to Jason Rodriguez for conducting the interview and to NASA for sponsoring the series.
0: This episode was produced by me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Karen Romano-Young
1: we'd love to hear your thoughts so please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite
0: podcasting
1: app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com
0: thanks all and we'll see you next week oh all right that's how that's how that's going to go with us just singing <laughs> into our title credit <laughs> yeah it wasn't uh, it was not a good look to say the least that's like
1: you like built your own baseball cap it sounds like
0: oh kind of yes it was uh it
1: was themed for the party you were just being on
0: theme yeah and then (laughs) being for the party actually kind of uh and then there was a moment for a long time I used a product that was um it was called ice and it essentially was it was it did the same effect of hairspray it made it kind of hard and but instead of going straight out it just uh-huh. it does what it kind of does now except less natural it went up and so oh. yeah my high school was uh, high school was fun i liked high school a lot but my look right. was awkward. tragic <laughs> tragic oh. <laughs> all right we need no, to keep I going mean,
1: no i'll reveal that i had i mean i think i've said this before i had a full face of blue makeup phase that I went through. Blue lipstick, blue eyeshadow, blue blue anything I could get, blue mascara. So,
0: that is uh You're not alone. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I appreciate yeah. that. I would love to see those pictures.